Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Okay, are you recording? Dudes and dudettes, welcome along to episode 19 of the Howie Games Artist Series, part A, featuring former swimmer, long-time TV star and one of the truly great people, Joanna Griggs. Don't you love an overachiever? Vance Joy, singer, songwriter, gardener, is there anything you can't do? <laughs> I can't cook. <laughs> yes! <laughs> As a young person, finding my way in sports TV with no idea what I was doing, I count myself extremely fortunate to have worked for a few years alongside Joe at Channel 7. Partly through observation, partly through her taking the time to explain things to me, Griggsy showed me some really important requirements for success in the TV caper, in any caper really, let's be honest. Hard work, preparation and remaining calm when things go wrong, which in our line of work happens frequently. But more than that, it was the way Joe treats people with warmth, grace and a real interest in them that had the greatest impact on me. Joe Griggs makes people feel good, which is a rare and valuable skill. She also says it how it is. She always has, always stands up for what she believes in and will also stand up for those that may not have the same influence as she does. Bless her. From swimming and chronic fatigue to breaking down barriers in TV, getting knocked down hard, really hard, and rising and rising and rising again, Joe's is a story that I love and I'm sure you will also. Enjoy the wonderful story of Joanna Lee Griggs AM, as strong and as principled as they come. Well, this makes me smile to welcome this lady to the Howie Games Artist Series because she is a star. She was a swimmer, which a lot of people don't realise. Um, she's a TV star now and a lady I've been involved with for a long time in a work sense. We haven't worked together for a long time, but when we did, we were both much younger. Welcome to the Howie Games Artist Series, Joanna Griggs. I can't actually look at you because it'll make me laugh. <laughs> Thank you very much, Howie. It is uh, all good memories, I have to say. All very, good memories. Very good. Very good memories. I need to right at the start. 160 plus episodes. But I'm going to say it before you do. <laughs> I've had two major stuff ups on this show. One was Mike Hazeman, former Australian cricketer in St. Lucia in the West Indies. Fifth episode recorded, lost the file, never went to air. Oh, no. That, that's my first major Worst stuff nightmare. up. My second major stuff up was organising to do this with you two and a half years ago, you changing your ridiculously busy schedule and me getting the week wrong and getting a text from you saying, Howie, I'm downstairs, I'm ready to go. It's six o'clock of a night and I'm in Bowen Heads. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, and I didn't know how to respond. So I am sorry from the depths of my heart, Joanna Griggs. I have to promise you I have never thought about that again really? after I got the apologies. Like, yep, good, we'll make another time. <laughs> I feel so, so bad about that. Hey, it is great to see you. If I'm not watching you doing the Better Homes and Gardens style of show, I'm watching you hosting live sport. Yeah. It's like you've got the travel component, you've got the live sport, like get stuffed. Yeah, and, Seriously. and you know, Better Homes is all positive. So, so yeah. just, every week is different. You, you're I'm constantly got a suitcase packed and you're going off meeting great people, meeting, you know, people who've come up with fantastic ideas and innovation. So it's just a joyous show to work on. And I think everyone who comes onto the show, whether they're working on camera or behind the scenes, takes them about five minutes and they realise they've actually walked into something pretty extraordinary. Um, it's why it's its 30th season. So wow. it's probably the longest running lifestyle show in the world How now. How long have you been doing it? 19 
years. Next year will be 20 years. years. 30 years since I stopped swimming next March. We will get to your swimming. <laughs> I don't know so much about your swimming. It's interesting. Because it wasn't that great. Well, it, it was. <laughs> On evidence by the statistics <laughs> I'm going to bring to the table, Joanna Griggs. I love you. Such a positive show. I was thinking about this in another context yesterday when I was having a conversation with someone. This is me, not you. I think in sports media and media in general, we need to look more at the positive story. I don't know what drives the negativity and we in the media will say, well, that's what people want to read. You know, the stats show it. Do you think we're too negative? Oh, 100%. I mean, the reason I actually started in sport and loved sport and and even, you know, when I came back to Seven the second time and uh, they wanted to make their money in prime time and, and at that stage, you know, I'd hosted the Australian Open for many, many years and so they only really got two weeks out of me and there were lots of discussions about how they could keep me in prime time with sport. The reason I wanted to do sport was sport is generally the, the thing that keeps people going in the toughest of time. You look at the depression, it's sport that gets them back. It's COVID. It's the positive look at COVID. Over, look at the way that we all, you know, everybody embraced it. Even people who, who didn't necessarily love sport got caught up in the stories and the people. There's always a positive story in sport. Um, and even even where even where athletes go off the rails or where things don't go well, there's always stories of redemption. Mm. And and they're the ones that inspire you. It is it's extraordinary. It, it's just the 24-hour news cycle that drives the negativity. It's that clickbait. It's the be as outrageous as they can. But I mean, I have these many, many discussions with the network in relation to reality TV. You know, it's a self-prophecy that they say that people only want the negative stuff. I, I don't believe that. And I think every now and then a show comes along that proves them wrong. Um, in reality, they, they keep saying we need to be more outrageous. We need it to be dramatic. Actually, you don't. You actually don't need that. So I, I have many, many arguments with them about you're only doing that because that's what everyone else is doing. So why don't you actually be the leaders as opposed to the followers? Um, I think it's the same in sport. I mean, I think in the recent Com Games there was some clickbait article that they threw me into that was absolute rubbish. It had had no, no, um, you know, truth or credibility to it. But it was literally uh, just people piling on. And and I'm okay. I've been doing it for thirty years. So you sit there and you just go, do you know what? I know you haven't actually heard the original interview because it's actually a really positive interview, but it just doesn't, yeah, they don't want to tell the positive story. So how do you take it when that negativity comes your way? Oh, look, water off a duck's back for yeah. me. It's been so long. But I, it worries me when there's people starting out because, you know, even, again, I go back to that other part of my life when I do reality TV, you know, everyone says they sign up for it. They don't sign up to have people pile on. And and if you see the after effects of, of what it actually does to people and their lives and their families' lives and their friends' lives, you know, it can actually have a real really serious, many serious consequences, whether it be through, you know, anxiety or whether it be through fear or whether it be through, compl- you know, complete misunderstanding of, of how trials work. You know, I've had parents bawling their eyes out because they're convinced that, that people are going to go out and be spat on in the street. And you try to explain to them that the, the person that's riding the foulest things is actually the person that would run across six lanes of traffic yeah. um, to have a photo with you if they saw you across the road. If, you, if you've lived with it and you've seen how it's all evolved and you've been around it for a long time, you know how to understand. You know what's important what's not. And you can actually really, which is a great skill from sport, leave behind the things that, that actually don't matter. For most people, that's an impossible thing to do. Um, you know, they, they, will, they will hear a hundred positive things. They'll hear one negative thing. That's the negative thing that will keep them awake at night. That's the thing that they'll mm. go back and they'll keep churning over in their heads that they will question themselves about. And they, it's like they don't hear any of the positive 
positive. So, yeah, I, it, it worries me that that is the way that the people in charge are, are thinking that you have to be because the truth of the matter is why do you think an Olympics or a Com Games does so well? Why do you think ultimately the footy finals do so well? It's because people love good news stories. They love to see people do well. They love to see something that distracts them from, you know, if you want if you want to be depressed, you can look at rising interest rates, yes. you can look at your bills coming in, you can find a million other things. It's an escape, can, isn't it? It's escape. It's escape and it's a, it's a really easy escape to enjoy. I think you want to be inspired and motivated. And to be honest, that, that, when I started this podcast, I was like, right, this is going to be a positive spot. Yeah. And hopefully it it allows that to happen. It's funny you brought that up. You're on the board of Beyond Blue. Yeah, it's it's probably one of the, the things that I'm most proud that I do. I mean, I've been a director on the board for eight years for Beyond Blue. Um, and I think if if there's, you know, I've been on other boards as well, but but that is that is actually something where often you, you'll be in the most random places, like you'll be in a toilet at an airport or you'll be you know, walking down a, a back lane and then, you know, 10 o'clock at night and somebody will come up to you and they just they just start sharing with you how Beyond Blue has helped them or somebody close to them or a child or a friend or a peer. And they end up telling you the most um, extraordinarily personal stories that, that I'm sure they wouldn't do it if it was any other organisation. It's just, you know, I sort of say to people in relation to mental health, and it's certainly, you know, a big topic, whether it's in everyday lifestyle or whether it's in sport at the moment, is everyone has their blinkers on in relation to it until they actually know someone or see someone or have a child or have a parent who is affected by yes. it. And then all of a sudden those blinkers come up and this whole new world opens. So I've been obviously heavily involved in that world for eight years. So to see the difference that we can do with BU in schools and particularly in that early learning space because, you know, that's that's something that everyone knows is incredibly crucial um, to determine somebody's mental health in later years. It just has never really been focused on in the way it has with BU. So in that age group, that's that's where my kids are at the moment, yeah. 10 and 12, and yeah. I know your beautiful boys have passed that now. They're yeah. in their mid-20s, which is bizarre, <laughs> and you're a grandma, which grandma. we need to discuss, <laughs> yeah. which wow, that just blows my mind. What, what's the main concern for the kids and their mental health oh. in 2022? To be honest, we're, we're really just seeing the starts of the effects of the pandemic. So right. um, isolation was a really big thing. Homeschooling was so brutal. Homeschooling was brutal for, for children. It was brutal for parents and sisters and brothers and it put families under enormous stress who didn't Bloody necessarily have did. all of the you know, the devices that they needed because it was all set up to be done online. It was incredibly brutal for the education staff who, who were trying to keep them engaged. And, you know, there were lots of flow-on effects, um, you know, whether it be people who are also working from home because they were all feeling the same things, but the ones that had kids, I think, had that extra pressure of trying to deal with everything in their own lives and finding those quiet spaces to get their work done as well as homeschooling. Just but the amount... Like, I, 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 I look back to the emotional swings that yep. the kids had yep. at the kitchen table when Erica and I were trying to get them through the day. It was, I hadn't seen my kids swing like that yeah. from, especially the young bloke, from tears to joy and back to tears within the space of 20 minutes of trying to get the iPad going. Well, then they're also missing out on all those milestone things that you do as a kid growing up. They're missing out on the connection with peers. I mean, it doesn't matter what age you are. Connection is pretty much the most important mm. thing. Grandma. <laughs> what, uh, what do they call you? Nana. Nana. So, I'm Nana. Nana Joe? No, so, so I think it was uh, it was actually coined, funnily enough, on social media. So once we announced that we're going to be grandparents, everyone was like, oh, Joe Nana jo instead Nana. of Joanna. So I was I became Nana and Todd wanted to be called Poppy um, and, you know, Jax, who is now four and a half, being 
a very uh, typical young boy called him Poo Poo, Pee Pee, and <laughs> eventually settled on Pepe. Right. And he sort of says it like, he goes, oh, Pepe. <laughs> and uh, it's just, it is every every cliche that you've ever heard about being a grandparent is 100% true. It fills your heart with joy. Oh, man, it's brought, it's brought joy not just to our hearts, but... You know, the joy I get out of watching Joe be a father, you know, Jesse be an uncle, uh, the joy that you see with the whole extended family that come back when there's another young one again, the love that you feel, which you, you can't, you actually don't think you have any more room to love anyone else, but the love that you feel. I mean, we laugh. I mean, I, I say to Todd, you are literally Jax's bitch full time. You know, Jax will play <laughs> with him, he'll muck around with him, he plays a million games, he's the most patient man in the world with him. And then as he walks out, he just looks at him and he holds his hands up and he says, Pepe, my hands are cold. And then Todd just dives down. <laughs> to warm his hands and I look at him and I think like I know how much he loves me but he wouldn't do that for me. <laughs> so the last time I saw your man Todd was at a great mate of our Matty Weiss's wedding yes. and your man Todd had having a couple of frosty ones at, at that stage so he's turned things around a little bit to be fair. To be fair Todd has the best time wherever he is. Right. Whether he's had a couple of frosties or whether he hasn't. He is one of those people that just loves life and has the best time wherever he is and as a result everyone around him has the best time but it's been particularly nice because we couldn't have children together so to to see, you know, and they treat him, you know, he is the grandfather and uh, to see, to particularly to see him, watch him with, with Jax is just, it is just extraordinary. Well, I'm happy and I hope there's many more for, for, for Joe <laughs> Makes Nana. you a terrible parent because you literally say to kids, go forward and procreate. <laughs> doesn't matter what the situation, we'll support you. I'm not at you. that point, Griggsy. I'm not at that point. Give me 35 years and I'll start discussing that. Now I have notes oh, okay. about swimming. Oh, gosh. Um, I've got some good notes here, interesting <laughs> notes, and I really look at my notes. Um, when did you first realise that you could swim better than everyone else at swim school? Because a lot of people don't realise that you were, and you'll joke around about it, I'll get to you, you know, you're a Commonwealth Games bronze medalist. You, you were an elite swimmer, world championships, etc. When did you first realise you could really swim? Uh, and you rarely talk about your swimming, which uh, interests me. <laughs> well, I never really get asked about it. Every now and then someone will come up and say that they remember me as a swimmer and I think, gosh, <laughs> I've only got something else better well, to do. Well, <laughs> I'm going to ask you about it. I, I've been back and looked at highlights. Uh, you're hilarious. Um, when did I realise? Uh, I, I think it was, I mean, I always could swim. We all, we, our parents were big on the four of us having to know how to swim. We grew up on the beaches and and if we weren't on the beaches, we were in the country and so whether it be dams, rivers or, or the surf, they wanted to make sure that we, we would be safe. Um, but we played a million sports and did a million things. And so swimming was just one of those things. I loved it. I, I used to train um, one, one session a week. And I went to a swim meet, actually, funnily enough, with another um, swimming family. And I went to the meet and I won everything. And so mm. instantly there were talent scouts at that thing that sort of came to mum going, oh, we, we, we really think she needs to train a bit more. And my mum was like, no, no, she's going to have a childhood. So it was this long <laughs> battle for a while between between the coaches who were pushing for me to do more and my mum who was going, no, I've got four kids and I've got to make sure I can fit all their you know, millions of sports in. And uh, and so I think when I turned, when I turned 14... I was allowed to go from one session to three sessions a week. And, and you wanted to do that? Oh, I was desperate to. I right. loved it. I mean, I loved everything. I, loved, I was so, I'm still so hyperactive. Yes. Um, and uh, nothing has ever been any different. I, I was hyperactive as a kid, as were as were all of us, to be perfectly honest, um, which I'm sure is mum's theory of just exhaust them mm. till they've got nothing left. Um, but... But basically went from three, you know, one session to three sessions to very quickly 11 sessions a week to on my first state team to on my first Australian team and was pretty much away. Like we were at the end of a really weird era with swimming. Um, you know, it was the era where you overtrained significantly. You, you, you know, I was a 50 and 100 metre backstroker. 
Um, I would do as much training as the open water swimmers would and a 1,500-metre swimmer, and even they would do too much training then. Um, And and so you also, you're probably at the end of an era of coaches where their behaviour, it would just wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to survive in the current day and age. How brutal they were. Absolutely brutal and physical and and just, it was just a very strange era. I I was lucky my personal coach, Paul Hartman, was unreal. But there's still even things now that we laugh at. We go, gosh, that that wouldn't have, wouldn't have made muster of the current day. Mm. you know, expectations that everyone would, would actually have. But because I went from nothing to, to so much, loved every second of it, travelled the world nonstop. I mean, at, by, at, at what age? Like 15? So from 15, I was overseas. So I, by 17, I'd gone around the world about 17 times because Swimming. that was the other part of, the other part back then was now everyone comes to Australia. They come to Australia because we have the most, you know, with America, we're, we're mm. the two greatest swimming countries in the world. Um, we have athletes that come out. We have coaches that come out constantly. Back then, if we weren't over there in Europe or you know in America or at all the meets overseas, they basically didn't feel like we we'd proven ourselves. And so you know, I, I travelled so much that I can actually remember getting home from a trip and you know coming home from an a day at school, sitting on a toilet, opening the mail, because back then it was by mail, and receiving another letter to say, pack your bags, you're off again. <laughs> and just sitting on the toilet crying, going, oh, wow, again. <laughs> like, like loved it every second when I was away. By the time I went away again, it was fantastic. But you just, you constantly, like I look at it, like I say, I've said it to my parents, I, I don't know how, I don't know how they trusted so much because when my boys were that age, there's no way no. I'd want them to have gone off and been overseas for but how'd you do with, years on with, with your schooling? Well, I didn't really have much secondary schooling as a result. So we, we so kids, if you want to get into TV, <laughs> quit school. <laughs> well, it's kind of ironic now that I chair the B. Yeah. <laughs> and even on the board of Beyond Blue, because um, you know I really only had a couple of months in total of secondary education, and and eventually was asked to leave early because I actually got dobbed in by another swimmer um, from a private school who who they knew that they were marking that I was actually attending school when. And when I wasn't, I just had a principal who felt right. that that there were going to be some, you know, some students who would probably never leave the Northern Beaches in their lifetime. And he he just felt that as long as I went and as long as I learnt things about every place that I was in, and as long as I was prepared to share stories when I came back, um, which was kind of genius of him because I still, I hate walking into a room still to this day of people I don't know. Mm. But back then it was the most mortifying thing that I could possibly ever do. Uh, but he would make me do it. So I probably have him to thank for being able to have the skill set to do that these days. So tell me a story as a, as a 15 year old or a 16 year old at, at a, an event where you don't know anyone and you're jumping, like uh, you're staying in hotels. Give, give me a Snapshot of what it was. Well, I can remember um, 15 at a, a, we were the first Western team into China. Wow. Um, which was amazing because now when I, I've been back to China so many times in my working life and I, and to be perfectly honest, it's unrecognisable from the China that, that we were in back then. What was the China you were in? It was, uh, the things that really stand out from a 15 year old, like, you know, you go to Shanghai and there were none of the amazing architectural buildings that are there now, which is all bright lights and it's hmm. extraordinary. I mean, there was n- there was nothing. There, it was it was just you know like little, if you imagine you know little tiny sort of like huts and and very low level shops and and everyone in just brown and grey and uh, I just remember there were distinctly being no colour. 
which which of course when they saw an Australian team turn up and they're you know bright gold and yellow and, and you as a six foot and, two blonde yeah, lady they just they could not they could not wrap their heads around it so um, things like that you just I always I always remember just you know being at meets and and not really knowing whether or not you're going to make your core time because you know the the language barriers back then um, were just unbelievable and so you, and you, it wasn't just you it was your whole team just looking at each other going do you think I just got caught then or do you think that was our event or how far away do you think it is and like it was just it just feels like it feels like it was just a different time which when I look at China now it was a different time what an experience though like good on your principle by understanding you were seeing the world and you're expanding your mind you weren't necessarily learning your your, your arithmetic <laughs> Commonwealth Games in 1990 yeah you roomed I read this with interest with Lisa Curry who has been on this show and blew me away. So you're 16. She was, because I talked about this with her, she was bigger than Ben Hur. Oh, she was a rock star. She was, was. The parallels actually this time around with Emma McKean and um, Kobe. Right. Going into into a com. Oh, with her and Graham. With her and Graham. Yeah, because, okay, okay. you know, Hayley was, I was the second youngest on the Australian team. So Hayley Lewis was the youngest and she was like a mega star because she went and smashed and got five gold medals. Um, but I was in a room with, with uh, Lisa and Julie McDonald. <laughs> Um, and all I just remember is that we'd have this bizarre, you know, kind of life in the village, which was already the most eye-opening thing I'd ever seen in my life. Oh, you're 16. <laughs> and also a pretty sheltered 16-year-old, um, to just everything that you, you that you witnessed in the village. But then you'd go to the pool deck and Lisa was Lisa was just literally this, um, she she was the big deal at those games. And, you know, she'd finish an event and there'd be a child, you know, handed down from the stands and then they'd be like, it was just like you, you, there was a circus in the village but then there was a whole different kind of circus on the pool deck. So it was... It was definitely, I mean, if I ever catch up with Julie Mac now, we still just giggle about just how surreal those moments were. Bronze medal in the 100 backstroke uh, behind Nicole Livingston, yep. who we both know yep. now very well and is doing an amazing job with sure AFLW is. and is still for mine the best swimming commentator there is. Um, I watched the race. I found some highlights of it. So young, <laughs> as did Nick Liv, to be fair. Yeah. And you'll you'll try and gloss over this, but Griggsy, you, you're a Commonwealth Games bronze medalist. Like that, that's elite. <laughs> that's elite performance. Look, look, it's great. It was fantastic, and I, and, I, and I, it was unexpected because I'd taken I think like close to two seconds off from my best time ever to make the final, I then took another second and a half off to get the bronze medal. So you performed on the big stage so, as well. Yeah, so it was, and it was just, and I just remember it was super exciting, you know, family all over there, absolutely amazing experience. Um, you know, I medaled at world champs, so I've, I've ended up with being number one a couple of times in the world. So I look at all of it, the only thing that, that feels weird for me is it just feels so long ago. And it was great. Like I'm not one of those people that looks back with angst and goes, "Oh my gosh, swimming! It was it was a horrible time." It wasn't. It was an absolute blast. Was I the best person on the team? Absolutely not. I, we swam with the original era of superstars of mm. probably the modern day era. Like in all honesty, your Susie O'Neills, your Haley Lewis's. You know, we had Lewis. Glenn Houseman, and then you had Kieran, and then you had Grant come through. Like it was it was absolutely amazing. The talented people that you swam with. So you just felt like you were you were just part of this amazing sport and amazing experiences. And they were. They were absolutely incredible. It's interesting because when my boys were um, 
I don't know what year they were in, probably year seven or eight, one of them came home and said, they were talking about you at school today, Mum. And in my head I was like, oh, yawn. Which direction is this going to go in? This will be interesting. And I said, oh, what about? He said, oh, they were saying that you're a swimmer. He said, were you a swimmer? And I laughed. I said to him, well, what, what, what do you think a swim, yeah, what makes a swimmer? Do you think, do you want to know if I was a, you know, he said, are you a swimmer or a swimmer swimmer? And I said, well, what do you think makes up either of those? He said, I actually don't know. I said, well, let me just tell you, I just run through some things that I did, you know, broke 30 seconds for the first time and, you know, was number one in the world four different times, silver at worlds, uh, Com goes, he goes, oh, that's embarrassing. He said, because there's this whole discussion about it. And he said, and I stood up and said, look, I'm really sorry. You've got the wrong person. <laughs> I know my mum and I've never seen her in a pool. <laughs> so you've kept, but that's obviously, you've kept it that low key from well, them. Because you, your kids don't care what you, what you do. They don't care if I'm on TV. They don't. They they love going to the Australian Open for 17 years yeah. and all the rest of it. But, but to be perfectly honest, um, they don't measure you by that. They measure you by by when you close the door, what kind of parent you are and and now what kind of friend you are because it does shift to the point where, where you're always hmm. a parent but you're actually their, their mate. So where are the medals? Um, I've kept my, I've kept my sport medal, my bronze medal and my silver medal. And I think. Silver medal world championships. Yeah. But I think that they're in like a a drawer and and a bedside table and that's it. But I don't have anything else. No other memorabilia. Like my husband was a little bit mortified years ago when we were clearing because we move all the time because we have a construction company and, and I just, just couldn't be bothered. We had boxes and boxes of trophies and medallions and all the rest of it. And I just said to him, look, the time's come. We ha- if we haven't opened it, it's the same rule for anything we have in our life. If we haven't opened it in five years, out it goes. Out it goes. So for people that are listening to this saying, wow, I didn't know Joe Griggs did that in the pool. <laughs> if her sons didn't know, it's fair <laughs> enough that you didn't know either. Back to Griggsy in a moment. Next up on the Artist Series, an incredible man, former Zimbabwean international cricketer and now singer with the voice of an angel, Henry Alonga. Henry is a man who has always stood up for what he believed in, which at one point put his life at risk. There's not enough time in a short podcast like this to cover all the consequences, but long story short, we settled on wearing black armbands as mourning the death of democracy and actually writing a statement as well. And we uh, did this protest. Which went worldwide, Henry. People need to understand it's a World Cup, it's a big stage. This wasn't a small thing that was reported. This was a worldwide point of discussion, which which highlighted what was happening in your country, which was the whole reason for doing it, I presume. Absolutely, yes. So um, we were told to recant and retract the statement. We said no. Who's telling um, you that? The, the Zimbabwe uh, the cricket, cricket board. The cricket, the cricket board, board. Okay. yes. Yep. Because you have to understand, most of the world, um, at least the Western world, were not happy with what Mugabe was doing. In fact, England didn't come to Zimbabwe in protest. That's right. Australia still came. That's right. And that cost England. That cost England that World Cup. Yes. Um, all the world heard about it. Uh, not everyone was on side. I got vilified in the local press in Zimbabwe. I got dropped from the team, and eventually I got death threats, which uh, led to me having to flee at the end of the World Cup into exile and go to England. That is Henry Alonga next Tuesday on the Artist Series. Let's get back to Griggsy. Chronic fatigue. Yep. Spoke to Lane Beachley early days on this podcast. It was in the first 35 episodes and it rings in my mind because she said I spoke to Joanna Griggs a lot about it Um, and she said that you really helped her through it. What was it? Because it... It seems to be so many different things to so many different yeah. people, chronic fatigue. What was it to you and what did it do to your swimming? 
Uh, well, I'd had glandular fever twice, which anyone who, who yep. knows anyone with CFS these days um, knows that, that that's often a precursor. Uh, to be honest, I had two and a half years, so from after the world champs, I felt really, really sick. Um, and it was in the week off. And I think it actually was just my body finally stopping. I'm done here. Well, just stopping for a bit because I, I actually, you know, a lot of people think I, I stopped because of CFS. I didn't. I went I went back twice and I ended up finishing with the fastest time of the year in 93. Um, but to get to that point at 19, so 17 is when I when I fell sick, to, to 19 when I retired, um, you know, I had two, two, ended up having two and a half years on a wheat-free, yeast-free, egg-free, corn-free, malt-free, sugar-free, beef-free, dairy-free, herb-free, spice-free, caffeine-free diet. Wow. What did you have? <laughs> well, yes, there's actually quite a lot you can still eat, but, but even combinations of what you could eat, you had to be very careful so you couldn't have anything that was too acidic. Gee, so to, I, I basically went from six to ten hours of training a day to almost the same amount of time just getting treatments, and we tried absolutely everything. We were involved in a couple of universities that were doing, because back then CFS wasn't a known Entity. So, it and was, was it was it you're a slacker? Uh, it was it was just really misunderstood. Okay. And and so you, you had that side of it, which you were trying to wrap your head around, and you were we, we were doing everything you know, called alternative medicine, complementary medicine, because we did absolutely everything that we could in that world, as well as everything that was being done by scientists and doctors and and under the care of a lot of people. Um, and so, and we just you, you just try anything. You're so desperate, you try anything, and you tend to go two steps forward, one step back. But for me, also, I, I at seventeen, I I was probably one of the few at that age that was really, really had um, found my place with sponsorships and with, um, you know, earning a great income. Uh, what I really learnt back then, which I think has probably held me in good stead for everything that I've gone on to do and and certainly the stuff with Beyond Blue is uh, when people don't understand what it is that they're faced with, they just, they just want to avoid it. And it's probably even helped me out have a particularly understanding in the Paralympics, which I love hosting yes. and love working on. And you'll talk to a lot of those athletes and they will say the same thing, that, that, that people don't understand their condition they or if they see them in a chair, they think that there's something wrong with them intellectually. Or So I didn't have it probably to the, obviously, as constant as they did, but I certainly had uh, a, a very clear and very quick understanding that for a lot of people it was just in the too hard basket. So I, within three months I'd lost all my sponsors. Um, I think throughout that year I had five friends who continually came and visited because a lot of people don't know what to say, they don't know what to do. No. Um, and so as opposed to put themselves in a situation where they are worried that they're going to say or do the wrong thing, they just stay away. So I kind of I, I saw I, I actually count that period of my life as the period that I am the most grateful for because I learned way more about myself than than I What'd ever could learn? have imagined. Well, I learned I learned one that I was comfortable in my own skin and comfortable with myself, which I think a lot of people struggle mm. with. Um, I learned that I, I was a lot stronger than people gave me credit for. I learned that I had uh, incredible determination and focus when I wanted to um, because you just can't, you can't live like that. Uh, because you know the sole focus was to get back to feeling feeling normal and feeling good again, um, and I learned I learned that I guess I, I learned that uh, that I was okay with whatever happened. Which I don't know. It's this weird thing. It gives you it gives you an uncanny peace, and I guess I, I learned my self worth and self value. And and I reckon you know I look at a lot of athletes even to this day that struggle in that period after they finish the sport, and you know so much of their identity is tied up in sport that they really struggle in, in those years after. I think 
being sick at that point in my life and the two, two, two and a half years that I had, I learned that I didn't define myself by being a swimmer. I learned mm. that wasn't what was important to me. I, I, and, and it sounds so, so cliche, but I, I learned that the things were important to me with my health were the relationships that I had with the people who were really important to me. Um, whether or not I could absolutely look myself in the mirror each night and know that I had done everything within my power that day to be able to put my head in the pillow and go, yep, even if it didn't exactly go to plan, you did You did your best. I reckon that's why most athletes struggle in life after because they they crave they crave to have that sense of identity and they crave to have that sense of, of, of knowing who they are and how they actually define themselves. And, and I think a lot of them, you know, apart from craving, obviously just the adrenaline rush that you get from, from competing, yes. um, it, it's actually more those deeper things that, that they're actually looking for. They're looking for that peace that they can actually be comfortable in their own skin when the door is closed and when they're by themselves. So when the door closes, and as you say, you came back to swimming and you, and you dominated through. Well, I had one little hiccup, and then I went back. And against it was against doctor's orders, but I I did hit the wall. And Australian swimming thought I was back, and they, you know, I can always remember it was in Perth, and the whole place erupted, and the stands erupted, and I just had all these officials coming up to me, and all the my peers were were so excited for me because everyone knew what a slogger it had been, and. I just remember them saying, oh, yeah, you're back, you're back and you'll be named on the next team to go away. And in my head I was like, <laughs> no, mate, I'm done. So were you just like, were you just having to sleep? Is that, Were you just sleeping? Uh, you sleep but you don't actually sleep. You sleep but you you have you, – your body's in pain. So it's almost like transferred nerve pain. So you, your body, you ache, you're in pain, you have fevers, sometimes you've got shivers, you have enormous headaches, you have no – you know, appetite. You have no, no desire to do something, and then if you do have a desire to do something, you do it, and then the after effects are so awful that it, it just, it's just, it's a horrible. I, it's funny. I don't, I haven't even thought about how it felt for a very long time, but, it, but I know it's something that I never would want to go back to, and it's something that I never would wish upon anyone else. So we started this conversation with Beyond Blue. So this is. 30 years ago. Let's say, let's say 15 yeah. years ago, but let's be honest, Joe, it was probably 30 years ago. <laughs> yes. So 30, 30 years, years ago, yep. people are worried about your physical health, not your mental health. Yep. Where if you were experiencing that now, mm. people would be concerned about your mental health. How, how was it for you, for your mental space, going through this from being a, a star of Australian swimming to physically describing what was going on? I, I think the overwhelming sense I remember is it felt really lonely. Mm. And that was with, like, I had amazing family support. Like, they were extraordinary. And and as I said, I did have those five friends who, who would just persevere and check in. And then some, sometimes you didn't even have the energy to talk to them. But even that, you learn through you learn through watching that. It's like sometimes you don't have to talk to be a support to someone. <laughs> you just have to be there. Um, and so... Yeah, it's funny because mum's actually asked me this a couple of times in the years since because, you know, mental health is just such a big topic now. And she's like, it's funny, I never really thought about that because I just knew if I just kept you talking yes, and, and kept you in, engaged as much as we could that I felt like I felt like you were going to be okay. And she goes, now I probably realise that there, there probably could have been more that we could have done. I don't, I don't know if there was any more that she could have done back then. It's a different because, time and different level of understanding though. Yeah, there's a lot more understanding. I mean, the core things are still exactly the same. Um, but, it, you know, even even through that, like I was able to help so many people. I mean, these days I, st- I still get asked about CFS and 
like with the advances that have been made and the knowledge that's been made and, and the understanding of what works for one that doesn't work for another, it's so far, it's so far removed from when I started. Mm-hmm. So I'm hesitant to give them all of the different treatments that I did because, you know, for example, my Chinese doctor's passed away, my my therapist has passed away, my nutritionist has passed away. So you kind of go, look, I can't I can't actually give you the exact things. I can give you the rough parameters of what we did. But either way, you've got to go on your own mm. journey and do it. But you've got to keep, you know, you, you've got to keep talking and you've got to keep got to keep giving yourself something to be, to give you hope and to work towards because, you know, I, and it's funny, I, I don't even actually think back then that I was, uh, I would say that I was really even really severely depressed or anything, but I do remember always realising that you actually had to have something to, to stay focused on so that, yeah, some days that would feel closer and some days that would feel further away. And I say to people who are depressed, it's almost like the the heaviness that you feel on yourself and, and that tiny glimmer of light that you see some days feels closer than it does other days. And so in a weird sort of way, it probably is, it probably does have parallels. Yeah, you're a wonderful lady. You're a wonderful lady. So you're 19, you're done with swimming. <laughs> As you've said, you haven't spent a great deal of time no. in school. Like, what, What's the plan? So there wasn't really a plan. I can always remember um, when I was in WA, my coach knew, he knew the second I hit the wall that, that I was done. He had to, I, In amongst all the cheering, I always remember seeing him and he just had a tear coming down his face because he knew that was it. So what did you come in that race? Oh, well, no, I won. I finished the fastest time in so the world. So it was world. Australian yeah, titles. Technically it was number one in the world, but it was actually March. So <laughs> It doesn't matter. So it's Australian titles. Yeah, yeah. So I won that. And, that's um, the wall, that's it. And I knew, I knew that was it. And so I remember... It, it was such a joyous occasion. It felt so great to be there. But I remember ringing mum on such a high that night and saying, mum, I'm going to announce my retirement tomorrow. And it's only it's only upon reflection that you laugh at now, but just the response from her was just this about three octaves higher than it normally would be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, are you sure? <laughs> what, what, what are the plans? And I, and I said to her even back then, I said, oh, don't worry, Mum, I'll probably end up working in television. Now, now I know and you know probably 99% of the athletes that we meet yes. have a dream of that. Yes. I also know 30 years on that it, it very rarely eventuates for the majority of them. Yes. And, and even if it does eventuate, it certainly doesn't eventuate into a 30 years no. with the diversity and the variety that I've been able to have and the um, and just the amount of work just back to back from that point on. Uh, but I, it, I was obviously in the right place at the right time because I announced my retirement. Mum was petrified. She only admits it now. Um, <laughs> and, and you know, I had no, no – I wouldn't have been able to go to uni. I wouldn't have – like I probably would have had to go to TAFE, and, which is a great career path to go down. And I'd actually speak a lot to lots of kids these days and say, look, they put so much pressure on you that there's only one way yes. to get forward. Like, there's not. You've got to get yourself in. You've got to work hard. You've got to be prepared to do the really crappy jobs. You've got to be prepared to do really long hours. But if you can make yourself a, you know, a valuable commodity – there's always a different pathway or you can educate yourself a different way to the way that they tell you there's only that one way. Like I hate how much pressure they put on. This is great advice, kids. If you're listening to this, listen to what Johanna is. <laughs> listen to what uh, what your, what do your grandkids call you? Nana. Nana. Listen to what Nana is jo telling Nana. you. Listen to what Joe <laughs> Nana is saying. So how, how did you get into TV? Well, the next day I had an offer from Three Networks, which is off kind the of back of unheard of. Yeah. And doing pool deck interviews. I wasn't even doing pool deck interviews. That's the funny thing. I hadn't even, I, I wasn't even, I wasn't even doing any, so I was doing, I guess I was 
push forward to be the front of sponsor events and things like that. But I, I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't have any media training at all. So who was putting the offers in? I had an offer from seven, I had an offer from nine and an offer from 10. Wow. Yeah. And I chose seven because Star. I went away and spoke to them all, which was most overwhelming Just went by yourself? Thing. Uh, yeah, went by myself. And, and sat in a group of middle-aged male executives, yep. I presume. Yeah. And uh, heard all their plans. And, and you're 19? Yep, 19. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and just, I always remember that Seven was the only one that offered training. And and I had enough of an ego from being an athlete that I knew I didn't want to do it badly. And ironically, learnt the first rule of television is that they will say anything to get you to sign a contract. There, there is no training. <laughs> they lie through their teeth. Training doesn't exist, kids. <laughs> if you want to get into TV, there's no training, there's no feedback. Which is the one thing I would change if oh. I could If I could change one thing about media. It would be that it would be the mentoring side of it. It would be, you know, blooding some new talent. Why, why you know, I'm, I'm considering myself towards the end of my career. Yes. That you would actually be blooding people along the way so that when you Not left existing. there was this fantastic transition and and a pathway of feedback. It doesn't happen like that. So I, I was doing... The, as the, the youngest ever female sports news reader. I was working as a reporter on Sports World, which ironically would go back and host yes. for all those years. Um, I got thrown into the Australian Open tennis. I was diabolical. And H- How was your first, like, crack at, tell me about your first crack at reading the news. So if people don't, you would have been off auto cue. <laughs> I've never read an auto cue before in right, my life. so an auto cue, uh, the, the words, pop, I hate the thing. I hate, I hate, them hate too. it. I, I hate why it. I don't use them. I so don't. you sit in front of a camera and these words that are written by someone else then need yeah. to come out of your mouth. How did you get like? I was awful. Right. Like, like it's funny how many people say to me that part of what they love. So this is the news. This is in Sydney. Yeah, the yeah. Seven News Bulletin. Who's yeah. the newsreader? Oh gosh, who was a newsreader back then? Um, oh, he's a real estate agent now, Ross Simons. Okay, so Ross Rose, and now tonight the sport we've got Joanna Griggs. Joe, what's happening today in the world of sport? I would just bumble my way through, and I did bumble. Like I bumbled. I think I bumbled. Like look, there's still going to be people who say you're still bloody awful. Um, I've just learnt these days just to go, okay, mate. Well, you know, when you have this skill set, see how you go. But and this paycheck, pal, <laughs> and this paycheck. Literally back then, it, it, like I just didn't. I just would. I would basically stuff up every time I was on air, like the first years of the Australian Open, I look look back now at some of the vision that comes up and it just makes me giggle. It was so bad. It was so – but they would also do things like, you know, as opposed to just host, you'd have a a milkshake bar in the back. You have to make players milkshakes or they'd have some, you know, stupid (laughs) thing that would make, you know, what do they call the lava lamps? Every time you'd be on screen, they'd look like some ridiculous phallic, you know, symbol over your left shoulder. Um, And so – all I remember was I used to get so frustrated. I'd, I'd be really frustrated. I'm really lucky that there's still some people that mentor me from those early days that used to, you know, I'd just come off air and I would just race into them and be like, tell me what I'm doing wrong. And they'd be like, no, 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 that was hilarious. I'd be like, Craig, glad I gave you a laugh, but now tell me what I did wrong. Mm. And they'd be like, no, no, you don't have to do that. You don't have to worry about that. But I was so frustrated because I knew I wasn't good and I knew I was, you know, and they, and they did rotten things like... I had a, actually did have a really great moment uh, during Salt Lake. So I, at that stage I was, um, I'd done the Sydney Olympics. I was solo hosting, the first female solo host of any Olympics coverage in this country. Thank you. Which I've gone on to do, you know, six out of the eight Olympics that I've, I've hosted. Um, and one of the original bosses from my time way back when called me up in the in the foyer and just said, hey, mate, come down. I recognise his voice. I recognise it because he'd been down my earpiece. I recognise <laughs> it because I'd been in his office a million mm. times. I recognised it because he'd screamed at me. I re- 
And I went in to see him and he said, um, I went down to the foyer, he said, you, you didn't even check who it was. I said, I, I knew who it was. And he said, but I could have been a stalker. I said, no, 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 I knew it was you. And he said, I've just come to apologise. And I said, we don't need to apologise. He said, no, I do. He said, mate, we used to sit in that control room and we would absolutely piss ourselves laughing. We'd be like, let's chuck Joe into this. Mm. Let's see what she does with it. And he goes, and honestly, some of the stuff that we made you do, he goes, it was a bit ridiculous. He goes, but you'd always just laugh laugh at yourself, which is a really, really key thing to do if you are going to work in media. He said, you'd laugh with the person. You would make the person feel comfortable. You'd just plow on. And he said, and isn't it ironic? Here you are solo hosting Olympics coverage and I'm currently unemployed. (laughs) And I just wanted to say, I'm sorry. (laughs) And it was, it was kind of nice because you, you kind of knew that's what they were doing. I mean, they sent me up in a ball gown at the Bathurst to do to to basically do a piece to camera in a ball gown in a ball gown on the mountain on the mountain as a nineteen year old. Like wow. just and of course you you do not you don't know what you know now. Like there's just not a chance that a TV executive would ask me. You know, even if they did ask me, I'd, I'd be very confident knowing what I'm very comfortable doing and not doing. But but when you're starting out, you just you're like right, okay, you that's the told. thing. I'll go and do it. And then when you're up there, you're like, well, this doesn't feel that safe. <laughs> How'd the ball down at Bathurst go? Yeah, it was um, it was an, uh, at another education, you might say. <laughs> On that, uh, there's something I want to ask you about. And I looked everywhere, and I managed to find your acting performance <laughs> on Home and Away. And I said to you at the start, because if anything comes up that you don't want in the that. podcast, this might be it. And I looked everywhere and then I found, is it Inga? Mm-hmm. The Swedish backpacker. Trying to steal Bobby's husband. So this is Joe Griggs. <laughs> like, how tall are you? Six foot. Six foot. In this very tight dress. <laughs> putting on a Swedish accent. Sorry, I've forgotten your name. Inga, I come from Sweden. Yeah, I remember that part. So, um, how long have you been in Australia for? Two weeks. I want to stay here forever. I hope to meet an Australian man and get married. Oh, well, um, I don't think you'll have any trouble on that one. <laughs> uh, that's my stepson, Sam. Mm. And this? Oh, that's my husband, Greg. Your husband is a handsome man? Yeah, I think so. Very handsome, sexy too. I'd say Swedish bogan accent. It was still Swedish. <laughs> it's very slightly so is Swedish. This pre-Channel Seven. That's pre, way pre-Channel Seven. Right. So, so that was when I was swimming, and I it was even when I was. I think it might have even been Out just before I got sick. Dandy. So I was modelling because right. I was away from the pool for so long. So I was doing some modelling, and that was just a you thing. Looked that, oh, you looked unbelievable. You looked unbelievable. I was, what, 18, 17, 18? Um, but I basically turned up, and it was it was to do a day on Home and Away. And, of course, I had, Bobby is about, I don't know, five foot one. You look like a, a, a you look like an Amazon, <laughs> like fair income. They should have stuck her on a box. But the funny thing is when I started at Channel 7, I knew that was there. Right. So I negotiated that I would own all the vision of that tape. You put that in your contract. My contract. So <laughs> they allowed they allowed me to own everything apart from the master tape. So I think it was 2014 um, on Seven Mate. <laughs> they started playing Home and Away, which oh, I no. didn't know from oh, start no. to finish. And I woke up and ironically it was April Fool's Day. And on April Fool's Day I woke up and somebody on social media tagged me in and said, 
has Joe Grigg Seven play Inga from Sweden on Home and Away? Oh, so no. you can imagine I wake oh, up, no. I, I just start hyperventilating. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, because it was it was like this legend. We'd all joked about it for years, and I had people who had tried to find it for goof tapes and tried to find, and had contacts and swore they'd be, and no one, like literally no one, could get Still this signed up in the contract. And then all of a sudden, it's it's out there. And so I went to work that morning, and of course everyone at work is giggling about it. And I get a phone call from the head of publicity, and she's with the head of Home and Away Publicity, and she said, look, we know it's an April Fool's joke, but we actually just need to to ask you to cover off. And just as I knew what they were going to ask, I put it on speakerphone for all of our Better Homes crew, and they said, did you pay Inga from Home and Away? And, of course, they all erupted. <laughs> and they went, is that true? And I went, yeah. They go, how do we not know? I said, oh, <laughs> they've negotiated. <laughs> and they went, well, we hate to say this, um, but, Grigsy, we're going to go to town on you. And so the next day it was front page of the paper and the headline was, Joe's lost soapy tapes. And so I just put out a, a little social media tweet back then and I just put, oh, it could have been worse. That is the end of Joe and a Griggs Part A. See ya on Part B.